All right, good afternoon. Thanks so much for staying and for being with us this afternoon. Maya, thank you so much for that song. That was awesome. You are officially better at piano than Pastor Levi. <laughs> you may not know this about me, but I did used to take piano lessons. I took them until my grade three, uh, whatever it's called, Royal Conservatory, grade three. I remember one song, and so if you pay me enough, you might be lucky to hear me play the Grand Old Duke of York, all right? <laughs> I don't do it for everyone, but if you're lucky... You might just get to, <laughs> that's all I remember, so. No, well done. Thank you so much, Maya, and uh, glad that you guys are here this afternoon. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter number two. Revelation chapter two. And as we turn there, uh, I'd like to have a word of prayer and just begin our service together this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for what you've done in our hearts already this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we open up your word now and spend these next few minutes together, Lord, that you would challenge us. Lord, help me to be clear. Would you use me to speak to all of our hearts today through your word? Help us not to leave here just as hearers, but be committed to, to follow you in obedience this week, Lord. We love you, and we thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a famous saying in life, and it goes like this. Variety is the spice of life. I saw some of you guys finish it with me, right? Variety is the spice of life. And I believe that is oftentimes very true. Uh, the opposite of variety, you could say, would be monotony or consistency, doing the same thing over and over and over again. Everyone here, no doubt, is probably given one of two directions. You are either somebody who's more given to consistency and routine, or you're someone who's maybe, and I would kind of categorize myself like this, given to change and spontaneity. It's not a matter of right and wrong. It's just a matter of difference. Some of you prefer uh, things to be the same way. You prefer uh, being familiar and your routine, consistency. And some of you like to spice it up a little bit, switch things up. You enjoy variety. The truth is, though, that sometimes a lack of variety can lead to a loss of life, energy, or passion. This week at one of our uh, young adult Bible studies on Thursday night, we were talking about the fact that sometimes when you first start doing something, it's quite easy. And it could be anything in life. It could be a, a new hobby you're picking up. It could be a new job. It could be uh, a new uh, passion or you're attempting to lose weight or go to the gym. And there's, a, there's an excitement. There's an energy about it because it's brand new. And so maybe you can attack it with a certain zeal and excitement and, and, and energy. And over time... As life goes on, circumstances happen, and the day-in-day -day routine just kind of goes on, it can become increasingly more difficult to do the very same thing. Because over time, that consistent monotony of life, it, you start to lose your energy. You start to lose your passion. You start to lose your excitement to do the same thing over and over again. In life, we're often drawn to what's new and what's fresh, right? A new job, a new friend, a new car, a new opportunity, a new iPhone. We always want the newest, the best of the best. We want the shiny new toy, you could say. A new relationship, right? They even call it the honeymoon phase, right? Because in that new relationship, that new marriage relationship, everything's good at the beginning, right? The honeymoon phase. Yet almost every time without fail, as we start something new, over time, that energy and excitement begins to fade, begins to dissipate. The new job that was exciting and fresh becomes a, part of, becomes a part of your routine. It becomes the nine to five grind. And what you once found exciting and invigorating is just normal, right? 
The new friend, you start to learn more about them and realize that they have quirks just like all your other old friends, and you start to realize maybe they're not all that much better or different than the friend I I ditched to join this new friend group, right? Over time, you start to learn those things. How about this one, a new car? Who remembers, how many of you remember your very first car that you bought? Not that you drove, but you bought, right? How many of you like that new car smell? Anyone like a new car smell? My very first car that I ever bought was a 2001 Ford F-150. It had that beautiful new car smell of used old cigarettes. That's, that's, that's what it smelled like. I'm serious. It took me like three months to get the smell of cigarettes out of that truck. <laughs> but I've been in cars that are like brand new. When someone buys like a new, new vehicle, right? And you know how it is when you, someone, you sit in someone's car that's brand new, they're like, don't move. Don't eat, don't drink, don't sneeze, don't breathe, don't touch anything. This car is perfect and it's going to stay like that, right? And six months later, they're going to the Wendy's drive-thru, they're eating fries, dipping in their Frosty, kicking the ones they dropped under the mat, right? Over time, you start to lose the excitement for what's new and what's fresh. It just is natural. It happens. It happens in relationships. It happens in life. It happens with cars. It happens every September when they announce the new iPhone. All of a sudden, ours isn't good enough anymore. And I unfortunately believe this is also true when it comes to our passion, or to use a Bible word, zeal, for God. Over time, like every relationship, it ebbs and flows. And we can look and see that maybe our passion for God isn't what it ought to be or what it used to be. You ever been around someone who just got saved? I mean, just gave their life to the Lord, and it's just on fire, man. They got a passion to live for God and to learn about God and to be in God's house, and it's exciting, and it's contagious, man, and you can feel it. And we can maybe look back. Perhaps you can look back in your life and think back to a time when you had that kind of passion. You remember in your life when you had that zeal, man, and that drive. It was just natural flowing out of you. You had devotion in God's word just because you wanted to. You came to church because it was uh, so natural and you wanted to be around God's people and you wanted to learn God's word and you, you wanted to pray consistently. It was just a natural outflow of your heart because you were so passionate about your desire and your relationship with God. And I hope that there's some of you today who are like, hey, Pastor Levi, that's where I'm at right now. Man, I'm riding the high. I'm on a hot streak. Like, it's, that's where I'm at. I'm praying because I want to, and I'm reading, and I'm getting things out of the Word, and I'm here today because I want to see God and see God's people. I hope there's some of you who are, who are there today. But I'm also convinced that in a congregation this size, there's some of us, perhaps, who are not there today, who are looking back and thinking, I used to be like that, or maybe I've never been like that, but that's definitely not where I am now. I know I'm not where I used to be. I know I'm not where I want to be. Because over time, like every relationship, a passion for Jesus can ebb and flow. And so if that's you today, and you say, you know what, Pastor Levi, that's me. I know I'm not where I used to be, and I'm not where I want to be. This series is for you. This series is for us. The goal of this series is to remind you, encourage you, and to reignite you, to stoke and to fan the flame of your heart, to be reminded of a passion for God. The hopes is that after these four weeks together, that we as a church can say we are reminded and reignited in our passion and in relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the goal, and that's where we're going to be headed over the next couple of weeks, all right? And so the Bible says, let's look now at our passage in Revelation chapter 2. We'll read together. Verses 1 through 5, we'll read. The Bible says this, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. And hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. The book of Revelation was revealed to the Apostle John during his time on the Isle of Patmos. He was banished to the Isle of Patmos for his faith in Jesus Christ. And we often think of the book of Revelation, and this is very true. It's a book about future coming events. It's a great book to go to if you're trying to figure out God's timeline for the end times. Absolutely. But before we get to that part of the book of Revelation, here in the first couple of chapters, uh, we see seven letters to seven churches. In the first chapter, John tells us that he was in the spirit of the Lord on the Lord's day, and Jesus spoke to him and gave him a message. Part of that message, absolutely, was about future events in the church and in in God's timeline. But the beginning is seven specific letters to seven specific churches. And these letters were to be taken into Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, and kind of one by one, we'll call it the Turkey Tour, right? They're going to go on tour with with the message and take it to all these different seven churches located in Turkey. And the first stop on the Turkey Tour is here in Ephesus. And that's the the lesson or the the letter that we're going to look at together today. So I want to tell you a a little bit about the church of Ephesus, all right? There's probably no other church in the Bible we know more about than the church at Ephesus. Sometime this week, go to Acts chapter 19 and read the story about how God started the church at Ephesus. Paul is there, and, and there's some disciples of John, and he, he teaches them to follow Jesus, and they get baptized in the Spirit. And then for two years, the Bible says, two years, every day, Paul is in the synagogues uh, teaching and preaching and discussing and debating truth. And the Bible says this. It's really amazing. It says, And all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So in those two years, I mean, the gospel is going forward from Ephesus. Everyone's hearing the gospel, starting with the Jews in the synagogue. I mean, they're taking it and they're spreading it to the Greeks. I mean, I mean, things are going on in Ephesus. And Paul begins that church. We later know that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. And they get a whole six-chapter book. And Ephesians is an awesome book. It's full of doctrine about how to get saved and what salvation is and who we are, our identity in Christ. And, and in ver- chapter 3, it's all about uh, the church and how God called the church. And then chapters 4 through 6, it starts to tell us practically how we can live out that calling in our lives. I mean, Ephesians is an awesome book. And that's written to them, the church at Ephesus, from Paul. Later, we know that Paul tells Timothy, he says, hey, I'm going to go to Macedonia. You stay and pastor the, the church at Ephesus. And, P, and Timothy becomes the pastor. And so then later, Paul writes First and Second Timothy to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus. And so here they get two more letters to their pastor. And Paul's uh, pre- t- writing these pastoral epistles, telling them about how to have strong pastoral leadership and, and teaching in the church and, and, and avoiding false doctrine. I mean, there's all kinds of good things going on at Ephesus. Many historical authors even believe that the, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written to members of the church of Ephesus as well. 
So, I mean, God cares a lot about this church. He's given them multiple books of the Bible specifically addressed to them, their leadership, or members of their church. I mean, you can see God's hand all over this church in Ephesus. It's an awesome place. However, they're located in Ephesus, which isn't an awesome place. (laughs) The church is great, but the city, not so much. We know from history and from the Bible that in Ephesus was located the temple of Diana, or as the Greeks would say, Artemis. This was a, a hub for idol worship within Turkey. Diana or Artemis was the the goddess of fertility or the goddess of protection and childbirth. And there was all kinds of sensual worship going on here in the city of Ephesus. And so you see this wicked, wicked place known for idolatry, known for idol worship. And yet in this wicked place, you have this lighthouse, this church, which is standing for truth with an amazing heritage, foundation, leadership, teaching. You have this awesome church in the middle of a wicked city. And I want you to notice in the first couple of verses, look at verse number two and three. I'm going to walk through them together. Notice how John continues here in Revelation to commend and encourage the church for the great job they're doing of standing strong for truth in an evil world. Look at verse number two. He says, I know thy works and thy labor. Here's the first great quality of this church. Number one, they labor and they work hard in the work of the gospel. This is a hard-working church. This is a church that's willing to put their their sweat and tears into sharing the gospel with other people. Keep reading with me. In thy patience, this is a patient and faithful church. I mean, they've been through some things. No doubt, being a Christian in Ephesus was not an easy thing to be. And he's like, hey, I know your works, I know your your labor, you're hardworking, and you're faithful and you're patient. Continue to read. He says, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Another great thing about this church, they have a distinct holiness and a hatred for sin. Keep reading with me. It says, And thou hast tried them which are evil, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars. This church has a commitment and a dedication to the truth of God's word. This is a church that knows God's word and can make discerning decisions based on God's word. If someone comes to you and tells you that they're an apostle and that's not the true, the only way that's not the truth, the only way you can find that out is by knowing what the truth is. So this church knows the word of God and they're able to make wise discerning decisions based off God's word. One more thing that he commends them for. He says in verse 3 and has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. This is a church that's persevered and endured some difficult times. I mean right now we're like wow, this is an awesome church. This is the kind of church I want to be a part of, a church that knows what's right, stands for truth, a church that's faithful and enduring and persevering and discerning. I mean, this is the kind of church we want to be. But the letter doesn't stop there. Let's read verse 4 again. We got to. to. He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Whoa. I mean, talk about a sucker punch. Talk about cutting the legs out of everything good he just said about them. He's like, you're faithful, you persevered, you stand for truth, you're discerning. Man, church, you're doing awesome. Nevertheless, you've left your first love. You've lost it. And church, can I say, if we're a church that's lost our first love, love, we've lost everything. Because if we don't get the love of God, we get nothing. Think of what the Bible says in Matthew 22, verse 34. He says, but when the Pharisees had heard that he put the Sadducees to silence, this is Jesus and the religious leaders, they were gathered together. 
Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. He says, this is the commandment on which everything else hinges. The whole law, the whole prophets, they're, they're, they're nothing if we don't get this. It's the foundational building block that makes the church what God called the church to be. It's that we know God loves us and that we love him. And church, there's so many great things that could be said about Bible Baptist, but if we've lost our love, we've lost it all. We're nothing if not for our love and desire for Jesus Christ. Consider the words of 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. I mean, you can make a lot of noise, but it's just noise if we've lost our love for God. Church, this is a sobering message, a sobering reality. That on the outside, there's a whole lot of things that could be going right, but our hearts could be far from where God wants us to be. And perhaps that's you today. Nobody else knows. Maybe nobody in your family knows. I mean, everything on the outside is good, but you know that your heart is not where it used to be, that you've lost your first love, that your heart is far from where you want it to be and far from where it should be. Your heart is not on fire for the Lord. And so I want to take just a couple of minutes. We won't be long. I'm going to look at four qualities of people who have lost their first love. And I want you to be honest with yourself, and I promise to be honest with myself, and examine our own relationship with God and say, is this, is this me? Is this descriptive of my family, of my house, of my life? So let's look at these qualities together based on the scripture here in Revelation. Number one, you might have lost your first love if you value standing for truth more than you love sitting with Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Standing for truth is extremely important. The Bible tells us that we as the church are called to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And so we are called to stand for truth. And so uh, don't, don't turn me off yet. Here's the problem. This is what the Bible also tells us about truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Unfortunately, I believe there's a lot of people who are willing to stand up for truth, tell the whole world what's right and what's wrong according to the word of God, yet completely neglect a relationship with the one who calls himself the truth. And sometimes we want to stand up and say, hey, this is what's right, world. Hey, we're the pillar and ground of the truth. We know what's right. This world is wrong. And yet we neglect a relationship with the, with, with the God of the truth, the God who sent his son to be wrapped in flesh and to be born and live out the truth for us. We want nothing to do with that truth, and yet we want to publicly stand for truth, and, and we wonder why we've lost our first love. Number two, you might have lost your first love if you value public displays more than private devotion. Remember what the Bible says about this church? They were willing to discern and able to discern people calling them apostles. I mean, I'm sure that was some, some sort of a public ordeal. These guys calling themselves apostles and preaching and teaching and this church being willing to say, hey, no, we're calling you out. This is not true. You're out of line with the truth. I mean, they have no problem. Just the nature of a church this strong in, a, in an idolatrous city like Ephesus. I mean, there's no, there's no hiding the fact that you're a Christian. I mean, you're in or you're out. 
No doubt this is a church that had no problem telling the world, this is where we stand, this is who we are, I'm a Christian, and they could be a Christian in public, no problem. But who were they when the doors were closed? What were they doing when no one was watching? They had lost their first love. On the outside, everything was good. But it's clear that there was no private devotion in relationship with Christ. Church, your whole workplace may know that you're a Christian. Your friends may know you're a Christian. You may tell your family, your extended family, they may know that you're a Christian. But who are you when no one's watching? You can sing and you can teach and we can do all these things. I can do these things. They're not wrong things. But who am I when no one's watching? Who are you? We can be public displaying for Christ, yet privately, where's our devotion? Number three, you might have lost your first love if you value faithful doing more than passionate being. You value faithful doing more than passionate being. Remember that this is a laboring, hardworking church marked by their service for the Lord. Now again, hear me. Serving God faithfully and passionately is not a bad thing. In fact, I think it's one of the things our church does the best. I love that about our church. We have a serving, hardworking church. I've always loved that about Bible Baptist Church. However, sometimes we can get our priorities out of whack. Serving only becomes a bad thing when serving becomes a replacement for our relationship with God. And sometimes we can excuse our devotion and relationship with God and think our spirituality rises and falls on our level of service to others. Guys, that's important. We're called to serve others, but it's nothing if we don't serve others out of a flowing relationship with God. Remember Mary and Martha? Right? Martha's cumbered about with much serving, and Mary's like, one thing's needful, just to sit at the feet of Jesus. Are we out of whack I wonder, are we a church that's too full of Marthas and not enough Marys? I mean, serve the Lord faithfully, passionately, put your heart into it, but make sure that service doesn't replace your relationship with God. If it does, we're in trouble. Remember that when Jesus called his followers, he called them first to be disciples, then sent them out to be apostles. We cannot go and serve and go for Jesus if we have not sat with Jesus. We're hypocrites when we tell other people to follow Jesus, but we're not willing to do it ourselves. So number three, if you value faithful doing more than passionate being. And lastly, very simply, just wrapping it all up, how do you know if you've lost your first love if you value anything more than you value Christ? Any good thing in our life can be an idol if it takes the wrong place. Any good thing or bad thing that has taken the place of Christ in your life is an idol. And is drawing your heart and your passion away from the Lord. I mean, Ephesus is a city of idolatry. And very likely there's some idols in our own hearts. We wonder why we don't have a passion for the Lord. Probably because there's something else that we're more passionate about. We value things, relationships, more than we value the Lord. I want to tell you, church family, that I echo the words of Pastor Yeomans this morning. This was not a fun message for me to study because I was convicted. I was convicted that sometimes I care more about my outward commitment than I do about my private devotion. Sometimes I can rely on the outside and not worry about the inside. And I'm just going to guess I'm not alone. If I am, I'm preaching to myself, and that's good. I need it. But I'm just going to guess that I'm not. I want to read for you what an author, Greg Morse, wrote 
about these seasons in our life when passion and love for God dwindles. He said this, he said, I might refuse discipline by calling it legalism. I might refuse God's presence, calling it freedom. Refuse to commune with him, calling it salvation by grace. Christ's blood becomes that which was shed so that I might safely ignore him. Of course, I overbook my schedule to hide my negligence. Like a criminal mastermind, I premeditate my alibis to exonerate myself from spiritual complacency. When questioned, like those other guests who also wickedly excuse themselves, I keep my calendar close at hand to justify not attending my master's banquet. I write off the whole bit about loving Jesus above everything or I can't be his disciple. I call it rhetorical hyperbole. And now listen to this. Even though I love Jesus, my love threatens to grow cold when the familiar becomes taken for granted and neglected. Sometimes just doing the same things over and over and over again, the familiar can become taken for granted and neglected. And I don't want Bible Baptist Church to be a church that God would look at and say, man, you guys are serving and you're hardworking and you've endured. I mean, COVID has been hard and the world is evil and you're trying to stand for what's right and you're doing all these things. You're working hard, man. But you've lost your love for me. Because if we've lost that, we've lost it all. Don't let your love for Jesus grow cold. Don't let it become familiar or taken for granted. John's going to give the church here three steps to move forward. We're not going to spend a lot of time with them today, but it's where we're going the next three weeks. So look at, look at verse 5 with me. John says this, Remember therefore from whence thou art falling, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Three steps, and they all start with R. It's really easy to remember. This is where we're going to go the next three weeks in this study, all right? Number one, the first step is to remember. Remember where you've fallen. Remember who you are and what God's done for you. Remember where you used to be when you were passionately in love for Christ. Number two, repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your selfish desires. Turn from your love of the world and now and material possessions and turn back to loving God. And number three, return. The Bible says return to the, do the first works. Go back and do the things that you used to do, the things you know you need to do. The things that you did when you were on fire for God. So these next three weeks, that's where we're going. We're going to remember next week. The following week, we're going to learn how, what it means to repent. And the week after that, we're going to try to return and do the first works. And my hope and my prayer is that after this month, we can say, Lord, we remember what it's like to be on fire for you. We've gained our love back. We're, we're not just going through the motions. We're not just serving. We're not just working hard. We're not just a pillar and ground of the truth. But we actually want to sit with the truth. And have a relationship with God. We want to do the right thing for the right reason. So I, I just ask you this afternoon, has your love for Jesus grown cold? If you were honest, are any of these things, things that you see in your own life, more of a commitment to outward obedience and outward standing for truth and less of a desire to sit and to fellowship and have a relationship with Jesus? Today, I hope that you'll be willing to be honest with yourself and with the Lord and just tell him, I've lost my first love. My heart's gone, gone cold. He knows that. He knows where we're at. Would you tell him today? Would you ask him to help you to reignite a passion for him and his word? Would you ask him to help you as you try to take steps over this next month together 
to regain our love for the Lord so that we'll do the right things out of a heart of love and relationship with Jesus. I'll ask you to, keep your, uh, to bow your heads and close your eyes with me.